Welcome to this, the next podcast in our new series entitled A View from the Practitioners Aim at 25, during which members of the Stevenson Harwood Equity Capital Markets team talk to some of the contributing authors to the Practitioner's Guide to the AIM Rules, the eighth edition of which was recently published by Sweet and Maxwell. I'm Tom Nichols, Head of Corporate and ECM here at Stevenson Harwood, and along with my fellow partner Tom Page, co-editor of the guide. Today we have the pleasure of speaking with Stephen Keyes. Stephen is Head of Growth Companies Corporate Finance at Senkos Securities, joining the company shortly after it was founded. Stephen specialises in advising growth companies on both AIM and the main market, and is active for companies across a wide range of sectors and jurisdictions. As well as completing a large number of IPOs and secondary fundraisings, Stephen is an experienced M&A practitioner, and prior to his career in the city, Stephen qualified and practised as a corporate lawyer in Edinburgh. Stephen, welcome and thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Joining us also is my co-editor from the Practitioner's Guide to the AIM Rules, Tom Page, who will be hosting today's conversation. Tom, over to you. Thanks very much, Tom. Hello, Stephen, and hello, listeners. Um, Stephen, I was just thinking back to the last time that we saw you in person, which I, I think was late summer last year, and Senkos had just done the Brickability IPO, and we were, despite that, talking about the uncertainty in the market for various reasons, Brexit being the most obvious one, but little did we know what was around the corner in 2020. I just wondered, how has Senkos seen 2020? Have you had any particular highlights? How have you found the AIM market this year? Yeah, you can certainly approach this bit of uh, the market in a number of different sections. And as we went into lockdown, there was uh, a number of balance sheet rebuilding exercises that were required. We saw that elsewhere in the marketplace. And then slowly companies began to get more in the front foot and see opportunities and have been much more strategic in how they've used the market. So we've been active throughout that period, really on the secondary side of things principally, but pleasing that we've had really four very material IPOs since the turn of the year. FRP, that's happened just pre-lockdown, and then there have been three separate IPOs that we've been able to conduct since lockdown itself, which I'm sure we'll go on to talk about experiences in those and how things have happened virtually. But yeah, Calnex, Roundhill Music and Q more recently were that one just coming to the market. Fantastic and, and great to see those transactions still happening. And, and actually, one of the things that people have been talking about recently is, is flexibility around market rules. And in London, of course, there is the, the standard list option, which is clearly less regulated than the main market, the regulated market. And one of the aspects on the standard list that might be attractive is the ability to have dual share structures, so particularly to give founders an element of control retention and the ability to, to block a change of control for a period after IPO. And in fact, we were advising a retailer who came eventually to the AIM market a few years ago whose founders were very keen on exploring that option and we spent a lot of time looking at it with the regulators and we think we did eventually get there but what actually stopped it then was the investors so the appetite of the market to support something that had a dual share structure uh, i mean and clearly this year the Hutt group has gone to the standard list with that at, at ipo for a period thereafter have you seen founders asking for that sort of share structure and how have you seen investors reacting to that well, it's interesting that you said that it was thwarted by investor reaction, your experience. We've not explored that for that very reason, because we're pretty clear that we would 
get that answer from investors. So I can see why in certain circumstances it may be appropriate. And you know, for a founder-led business like um, the Hutt Group, I would say there were pretty exceptional circumstances surrounding that business. And I've seen the feedback from the founder as to why he chose that route. But we would always try and structure a transaction such that there really is no reason for an investor to say no. And I can foresee that being a reason for investors to say no. I mean, incoming investors, they don't, they don't have to take an IPO. Uh, and so therefore, it needs to be positioned in such a way that it's as attractive as possible. And the Hot Group clearly has succeeded and, and done a good job for the founder in relation to that. But I don't think that's going to be something that will become standard practice in the marketplace. For exceptional circumstances or particular reasons, it may be appropriate. But I don't think that's going to become common practice. So one of the themes of 2020 that we've been discussing is the increased participation of retail in the aim markets, and that's in, in general trading, but also, of course, in participation in non-preemptive placings. And that's been enabled by technology again, so the primary bid platform is the most visible of those. How does Sencos see retail in, in, in their offering and as part of coming in and in placings like that and, and do you think that doing an open offer within those prospectus exemption limits is still the best way to go or do you think that that primary bid enabled non-preemptive placing is, has replaced that? Uh, it's been fascinating to see how this has become a much more prominent question for companies really since lockdown really I mean from March onwards you could see with the, the secondary balance sheet repair transactions that were taking place there were you know, very many examples of primary bid and, and, and getting involved in transactions that you wouldn't normally expect them to, to be involved in, like the Accardos of this world, for example. So it, it's definitely a, a hot topic. And I think they've done a very good job in providing that service. They've, they've done a good job in um, getting some of the, um, the coverage out there as well. And it really has, I think it's not too strong a word to say, put pressure on companies to sit up and listen to the, the retail shareholders uh, and how they're going to be addressed. I think the purest form of dealing with preemption absolutely remains through an open offer. Uh, and it's something that we at Sencos were discussing with management teams as a matter of course. It's actually part of our new business take on whenever we're going for a secondary placing. You know, will there, you know, how are the retail shareholders being looked after here? As I say, that, that conversation now is right at the forefront of management teams' minds whenever they're going down at the placing route. And how, how are they going to address the smaller shareholders' needs? So there's primary bid, there are other platforms out there. I think open offer remains the purest form in relation to that. But there's no doubt that rather than it just now being something that happened every now and again, there's now an expectation from the entire shareholder base that they will be able to participate in these transactions. And that's got to be a good thing. And Tom, Tom N, just for our listeners, perhaps you can just recap process-wise what the difference would be between an open offer and a and a non-preemptive placing with a... <laughs> Sorry, I hadn't rehearsed this. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. Um, so so I, I think that the two alternatives we do see are, are with an open offer, again, as, as you've alluded to, that there is a limit on the size of that. But if it's kept below the current EU threshold of 8 million euros in overall size, then that element of the offering can be made to existing shareholders on an absolute preemptive basis, completely pro rata to their existing shareholdings. I think the slight counter argument is what we've seen even in previous years as well is 
often there is a mixture of a placing with an open offer tagged on. And although the open offer element is truly preemptive, clearly the placing element still remains dilutive to a certain extent. So it certainly allows, and typically those those open offers would normally have a uh, an excess application so people can apply over and above their pro rata entitlement to the extent that others don't take up. So people probably are able to maintain their sort of stand their ground overall. But I think it's, as, as I think we've seen with primary bid, in a certain way, we are able to, you know, they are able to accommodate existing shareholders through that platform and into the wider placing without, I mean, the open offer process does add a layer of slight complexity. I mean, it's a very well-trodden route, but obviously there is a an additional limb then to the structure. There are application forms and, and a far sort of longer document, the circular becomes a a larger piece. So I think there's a balance to be had. And, and as Stephen says, it, it's really just finding ways to accommodate and ensure that the company doesn't get criticism that either smaller shareholders are are being excluded, or that it is being made exclusively available to what some would see as the, you know, the usual set of institutional investors. Mm. Interestingly, well, maybe not interestingly, but I, I, had, I had some interaction with some of the retail shareholders in relation to one of our transactions that took place this year. And for a variety of reasons, it wasn't possible within the time frame to include an open offer. And so there was some interaction with the retail shareholders. And I was asking them about different platforms and just engage with them about how they'd like to participate. Did they have a preference that we could take on board? And really, it was they, they were agnostic as to how they were able to participate. They just wanted to be able to participate by some means. So that was quite interesting feedback generally in the, 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 that we took away internally and in that these guys, they just want to be able to participate in some form. Um, we, we don't have to be pigeonholed as to what that platform or open offer or, or whatever it may be. There's, there's, there's a variety of solutions. And final couple of questions from me, Stephen. I thought I'd just ask you to speak directly to uh, a couple of categories of listener. So first, what would you say to founders and, and owners thinking of bringing their their companies to market um, in 2021? And then second, what would you say to companies who are already listed and are thinking of raising funds in 2021? Yeah, so two separate questions there. I mean, the first one in terms of companies thinking about coming to the market, it's, but I would actively encourage them to do just that. I mean, it's, it's competitive out there, as we know, with private equity having a lot of cash as well. But I think we've demonstrated through the four IPOs that we've done so far this year that they're all trading at a decent premium. Uh, it's given uh, management teams access to significant amounts of equity uh, capital. And then there's continued access to that capital in the future. So I think we've demonstrated that in very challenging conditions, an IPO can work. Next year, who knows what the market conditions are going to be like, but one would like to think that dynamics are such that the equity market should perform strongly. I mean, there are certain things that are clearly unknown, but I don't think interest rates are going to be going up anytime soon. Um, But there's a lot of cash that's been pumped into the system. So it could be an inflationary environment uh, and therefore the equity markets could have a a strong run. So there's a a nice backdrop, I think, for coming to the market. And then you just look at companies individually and their own individual characteristics. And the message to them would be, Come and have a chat because there are lots of things that we can talk about on a, on a very informal basis in terms of how to prepare for an IPO. But a lot of it is about being ready and then setting expectations 
at the right level from the outset. Uh, and then importantly, and I don't think we're unique in doing this, but we we like to think we're very good at ensuring that we're getting hard commitments up front from investors such that there's there's a high degree of confidence before management teams and the existing shareholders incur the cost of an IPO. So certainty of execution is absolutely key in these situations. And you know, working with a broker that gives you that confidence is is very important. So that's that's on the companies considering coming to the market. For companies that are on the market, and clearly it's been a challenging 12 months for everybody on the market, regardless of the profile of the business. And the challenges principally are because of uncertainty and people know that uncertainty on the stock market is a it's a difficult thing to manage so again expectation management is crucial and uh, there are a number of companies out there that have forecasts withdrawn from the market that's a tough place to operate if the market doesn't actually have any forecast information to to analyze so if they haven't already got the numbers back in the market then i'm sure they will soon um, and that would be something that we would be advising them to do so the market's got something to to properly digest and i think the the advice to those companies would be to set those numbers or give guidance that are that is conservative prudent and is going to be hit and and deliver upon those numbers Um, we've seen that there's a degree of scope in the current environment with shareholders giving management some scope um, in the current uncertain environment as we move into the new year, there will be an expectation that management teams have got a grip of their businesses and know how to forecast the business properly. And I think there'll probably be sort of less forgiving market if, uh, if numbers are not hit. So I think the advice would be make sure that things are set at the right level. Stephen, many thanks for joining us today and wishing you and Senkos a very happy and active 2021. Thank you. Many thanks. It was a pleasure.